You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. It's nice to be here having a conversation with you. I think some of you know, if you've been here a while, you know that I used to be in the Army. I was actually in the, the Army National Guard, which if you talk to people in the Army is not the Army, right? It's the National Guard. But <laughs> And I get that. I respect that. What I did was uh, you know, pay for my college and uh, got some good training. I did not uh, do anything heroic like many people in the service do. But nonetheless, I was in the, the National Guard. And I, I got out in 1999, which, of course, was a couple years before September 11th. When the U.S. invaded Iraq, my unit was mobilized. Not immediately, but but shortly thereafter. For those of you not old enough to remember this, there were stop loss orders and, and all kinds of things that kept people from getting out. All of a sudden, the National Guard, which had been, when I joined, I joined in 1990. My gosh. <laughs> I joined in 1990, and it was you know, literally the, the transition from a Cold War mentality to something else, right? You know, it was the Iraq War then, the first Gulf War. And then ultimately became, you know, the war on terror that we all kind of come to to know and understand. I was in during that transition phase. So when I joined the National Guard, I'm going to say it like this, and I don't think this is fully fair, but I'm going to say it like this. When I joined the National Guard, it was a joke, right? It was serious. I mean, you went to basic training the same as the people in the regular army. But, you know, when you got sent back to your guard unit, uh, we didn't have good equipment. We didn't do real training. It was not a serious undertaking. By the time we got to 1999 and I was getting out, it, it was a very serious undertaking. The guard had an increased role after the end of the Cold War. And I could see that during the nine years that I was in, this, the, the change in our training, the change in our approach, the change in our equipment all suggested that there would be a, a much heavier emphasis on the guard if there was ever a future conflict. And when that happened on September 11th, and we ultimately went into Afghanistan and went into Iraq, we relied heavily, heavily, heavily on the National Guard and the Army Reserve in ways that we hadn't done prior, right? In ways that, that really, I, I don't think were contemplated in the pre-1990 era of the Cold War. I bring this up because I want to talk a little bit about the way we respond to tragedy, the way we respond to hardship. And I think the military is a really good way to start this conversation. In that Operation Iraqi Freedom, that was the name of our attack of Iraq after September 11th. Uh, it started in March of 2003. In that conflict, as it's defined, and I think it's defined as like a seven or eight year engagement, it was a it was a lengthy conflict, not as long as Afghanistan, but but it was very lengthy. In that entire conflict, the United States military 
experienced a total of 3,481 hostile deaths. Those are combat deaths. So those are not, you know, the number of people who died who were on duty or what have you. This is, these are deaths essentially in action. 3,480. I'm just going to, for shorthand, say 3,500 people died in the Gulf War. I'm just going to say 3,500 people died in Operation Iraqi Freedom. For those of you that don't remember, there was a lot of consternation during this conflict because the weapons that were used against American troops were very unconventional, right? The, the IED, the improvised explosive device, the idea that someone would go out, plant a massive bomb along the edge of a roadway would be able to sit and kind of watch from a distance and then trigger this bomb with a cell phone. Essentially, we couldn't track who put it, who did it. We didn't know where they were. There were all kinds of, of problems with this. And I'll say this, one of the biggest problems or one of the biggest challenges was that we were used to the frontline troops that were projected out into combat um, we were used to defending them, right? My my unit originally was a FSB. It was a forward support battalion. And, you know, y- you have very different tactics than when we later became a an MSB, a main support battalion. Forward support is up in the front lines. Main support is back in the rear. And for the most part, if you're forward support, we know how to, uh, you know, protect your vehicles, give you extra armor, extra protection, extra, you know, what have you. There, there are tactics to do that. But defending against what essentially was ongoing guerrilla action in the rear is something that I'm not going to say we didn't contemplate as a military, but it was something that, in a sense, you relied on the front troops to do, right? Um, you've got a front line, as long as you can hold the front line, in a sense, and not allow breakthroughs, your stuff in the rear, you guys driving around in a truck, which by the way, that was my job in the army. I was a truck driver. You guys driving around in a truck were relatively safe. And indeed, when I joined the National Guard, I was joining what in a Cold War sense was a, a relatively safe job, right? I, I, I joined on my 17th birthday, and so I had to have my parents sign off. And, uh, you know, they, they did not like this. They were not happy. Um, but one of the things that, you know, reassured them was that I was in a safe job. I was a truck driver. Well, truck driver in the Iraq war became one of the most dangerous jobs because these IEDs could be planted along the roadside and, you know, blow up what in a sense were defenseless convoys uh, full of people, full of supplies, and a, a large, large percentage of our casualties. In fact, I don't have the exact numbers. I'm going to say this uh, with some confidence. A, a extremely high percentage of our casualties came from these roadside bombs. And a very small percentage of our casualties actually came from what we would consider combat. You know, there's enemy troops over there. You're fighting on them. They're firing on you. Roadside bombs became the thing. And during this period of time, there was a lot of consternation about armor on vehicles. The Secretary of Defense at the time, a guy named Donald Rumsfeld, highly controversial figure, 
of course, I mean, we're in a war. It's not going well. Is it going to be controversial? He made a statement that uh, has kind of passed out of, it, it was it was commonly repeated and, and it was one of those tropes that was like used all the time. It's kind of passed out of that now. I'm going to bring it back here a little bit. He, when asked about the armor and the need for armor on these transport vehicles that were not armored, because no one had ever thought to armor them up, right? Um, when asked about this and the need to get armor on them to protect all these troops that were vulnerable and, 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 and address the number of fatalities that we were experiencing, he famously said, you go to war with the army you have, not with the army you wish you had. And here's the thing, like, I understood what he meant. He was roundly lampooned. And, I, you know, I think in the context, uh, obviously tone deaf on, on a number of things. But on this thing, like, I, I understood what he meant. What he meant was, look, we got troops out in the field. They're in the front lines. They need supplies. I wish we had the capacity to put armor on every vehicle that did a supply run, but we don't. Because if we do, our frontline troops will either have to withdraw or they're going to starve or it's not going to work. And so we have no choice but to go to, the, to battle with the army we have rather than the one we, we wish we had. We got, we got to send people out in vulnerable vehicles. This created a huge firestorm, huge, huge, huge amount of public backlash. And, and I, I get it. I feel like rightfully so, right? We're the strongest military in the world. We spend more than the next you know, umpteen number of countries combined on our military. The idea that we couldn't, when we recognize a problem, solve it. Uh, just seems wrong, right? Especially when troops are dying. Why can't we get armor on these vehicles? It doesn't seem that big of a deal. And of course, you're also simultaneously with this getting stories because this was a, a war, uh, you know, the Operation Iraqi Freedom, uh, the, the war against Iraq. This was a, a, a war, a conflict where the communications were very fluid. And so individual soldiers were talking to loved ones back home on a daily basis. This is... Not early, early internet days, but this is like mid-internet days, right? You, you still are, you're starting to use Skype, getting a little bit of video conferencing in, uh, but you're having troops, you know, certainly with cell phones, you know, getting back and talking to loved ones back home on a regular basis. And they're saying things like, we're scared. We don't have armor. We are, you know, doing these makeshift things. Like we're grabbing old cars and stripping them bare and lining the inside of our vehicles with this to give us some more pain. Stuff that was just like, you're like, oh, it makes me cringe. Like, you know, the idea of being on the ground in this situation is just gut-wrenching. It's gut-wrenching. Eventually, this controversy went away. And the controversy went away for one simple reason. We got armor on all the vehicles, right? Um, the, the Department of Defense was able to mobilize an effort uh, in the theaters, right, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, to bring in vehicles that were already pre-equipped with armor, to bring in heavier, thicker vehicles, vehicles that were resistant to roadside bombs, and also to deploy uh, additional armor on some of the most vulnerable vehicles and uh, jamming equipment and other things to detonate bombs or alert people to bombs or do different things so that you know, the training shifted so that they could deal with this threat. The deaths to roadside bombs started to plummet, right? There are other things that were done in terms of drones and surveillance that, that are really kind of mind-blowing, but let, let's just stick to what was done with the vehicles themselves. We, we armored them up. We armored them up. 
3,500 troops died in this, in this conflict. Many, many, many of them, a, a huge proportion of them from roadside bombs. I want to talk about a related tragedy with military service, and that being the tragedy of veteran suicides. Veteran suicides is, is one of these things, and I, I have, as you can imagine, I have a number of friends who served, and my unit was deployed, so I have friends from my unit who, who went into combat theaters and, and came back, and, and some of them struggled, obviously. Um, I know other people uh, casually as friends uh, who likewise went through that. My, uh, my wife, and I, I don't talk about her a whole lot, but my wife as a reporter uh, did a, a whole series on veterans and their struggles. Um, a big series. She won a bunch of awards for it. It's actually a, a really big deal. She spent a lot of time with them. And my wife is this deeply empathetic person. So I, she would come home and, and I would get the download from her brain so she could sleep at night of, of all these things that people were struggling with. Let's do the number first, because I think the number is really important. I, I brought up 3,500 combat deaths. In the Iraq war, um, there have been over 30,000 military suicides since the beginning of that war. There are, you know, 20 soldiers a day on an average day that, that take their own life. Um, these are troops that have served the country. These are people who have gone into difficult situations. Not all of them, in fact, a high percentage of them have not been under fire or in combat, but have just been in theater, right? Uh, in stress under, under these circumstances suffering from the effects of mobilization, the effects of being under threat, the effects of combat, and then coming back here to the U.S. and, and trying to, in our culture, in our time, in our place, sort it all out. And what we see is that a, a disproportionate number of these people take their own lives. I want to contrast these two numbers and then contrast the response. Because the numbers, and I'm not, I'm not trivializing 3,500 combat deaths. I'm, I'm, I, I led off with myself being in the military and me having friends who, who served in, in this conflict because, you know, this is very real. Like I'm, I'm not someone who's going to discount and say, well, you know, it's a war. We're going to lose people. I, I don't think that way. And that's not the way that I approach things. And by the way, just because I know there are people out there who are going to hear this in a certain way. I am focusing on the military here. I'm not focusing on the horrendous, horrific, gut-wrenching levels of, of civilian deaths and casualties and atrocities. I mean, we this is not a this is not a podcast about the war. Um, I'm trying to make a, a deeper point here about how we react, but I, I I just want to acknowledge that right. There's all that out there. Um, but let's take these two numbers: 3,500 combat deaths and 30,000 death by suicide. The first thing I want to point out about this is that the combat deaths are, I was going to say big, they tend to happen in clusters, right? They tend to happen in spectacular fashion. A roadside bomb goes off, eight people die, uh, 20 people are injured, right? A helicopter is down, 12 people die. They, they tend to happen in bunches. They're, they're spectacular events. They're, they're things that get reported in the news as you know, this big tragedy 
happened. And the tragedy is is big, not only because our eyes are focused on it. I mean, there's a lot of journalism going on in a war zone and conflict, but also because it, it tends to happen in large numbers, right? This tragedy occurred. These numbers of people are are killed. And you know, one of the things that was unique about the Gulf War that we really haven't seen in American history, we've certainly, the British saw this in, in World War One, in the way they, they recruited troops and sent them into the line. You know, you had units where units would disproportionately be affected, right? You know, you, you take my guard unit, which is from central Minnesota, and everybody there is from, you know, the same dozen communities, Right. And when a roadside bomb goes off and it, it kills you know, eight people from that community, that community is going to remember that forever, right? They're going to they're going to disproportionately suffer. I think what I'm looking for is to say these are these are high profile casualties. These are high profile deaths. But suicides are not like that, right? Suicides come about in this kind of drip, drip, drip fashion. Twenty a day is a lot. 30,000 is a huge number, but they don't happen spectacularly. You, you don't have groups of eight soldiers getting together and, and doing a mass suicide, right? It happens one here, one there, one over there, one over there. That's the first thing I want you to, to recognize about the difference. The, the other thing I want you to recognize about the difference is that when we look at, especially deaths to roadside bombs, the cause and effect is really clear, Right. People are going out and planting roadside bombs. The bombs go off. They kill people. There are ways to respond to that, whether it be deterrence of the people out setting the bombs, tracking them down, whether it is you know greater armor in the vehicle, um, whether it is some you know running interference so that they can't trigger them. Whatever it is, th- there is a problem, and there is a series of solutions that can be. Uh, implemented that directly addresses that problem. Both are, in a sense, very clear, right? Like they're very understandable. When we go to suicides, however, the cause and effect just goes away, right? We can see, and this is where, you know, complexity really reigns, right? Because we can take two soldiers from the exact same unit, put them through the exact same training, have them live in the exact same community, right? Basically be the same age, have the same kind of cultural influences. We can do all this stuff. We can send them off to a war zone, have them basically be next to each other the entire time, the entire time. We can bring them back. We can put them back into our culture, back into our civilization, sans war and conflict, right? Over here in in America, send them to Walmart together, send them to uh, Burger King together, you know, do whatever. And one of them commits suicide and one of them does not. What, what are the causal factors, right? What, what are the causal factors in this? It's really hard to tease out because they're, they're almost infinite, right? You know, what, what kind of home were they raised in? What kind of support do they have at home? What kind of issues do they, in a sense, bring to their military service? Once they're in the service, what, what was their training like? What was their experience like? Do they fit in? Do they, do they not fit in? Do they feel like they belonged? Do they have a sense of meaning? Is that sense of meaning and purpose hurting them when it's gone, when they, when they lose it, when they no longer have their troops around them? Do they feel isolation or do they feel liberated? 
what is their mental composition, right? What's uh, going through their their body? What 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 kind of hormones does uh, their brain pump out? These are all like questions that would be factors in saying, uh, you know, this person or this person is more likely or less likely to commit suicide. The reality is, is it's really really complicated. Step back now and take those two things in total, right? Thirty five hundred deaths with the ability to identify cause and solution and to go out and execute on a plan that dramatically improves that situation. That's what roadside bombs and vehicle armor were. Versus 30,000 deaths in a drip, drip, drip kind of fashion where the cause is really not discernible. And even more difficult than that, the way you actually go about preventing it it is really difficult, really, really messy. And it's not clear from individual to individual what is actually helping and what is actually harming. These are two radically different problems, right? I want to suggest that our top-down systems are really good at responding to the first problem. The Department of Defense can mobilize to put armor on vehicles and do these other interventions because top-down systems can handle problem-solution, problem-solution, problem-solution. They can do that over and over and over again. Top-down systems cannot handle or really, 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 really struggle to handle complex problems. They really struggle to handle the nuance We've watched the military try to adapt. I think one of the greatest things the military's done is, is start to recognize that this idea of soldiers, veterans committing suicide is not something that can be ignored or should be ignored or is unrelated to their military service. There's clearly a correlation between the two. And so the military has has started to, you know, do things. But, you know, you look at some of these and they're very clumsy, right? Sit down with a person and say, hey, how are you feeling? Uh, you think about killing yourself. Now, I, I realize that, you know, a, a lot of people will answer that in one way or another, but a lot of people who are struggling with depression don't realize they're struggling with depression, right? I mean, they don't recognize it. It's not, recognition is, is often not one of the symptoms. Talking about it helps. Having a culture that doesn't stigmatize people helps. These are hard things for a top-down group to pull off. Because it's a hard, it's really hard to get into the intimacy of someone's condition and understand what it is that is motivating them or what it is that, that will push them into taking their own life. This is really, really hard. This is all a big setup for another instance I want to talk about that Contrast the, the big high-profile event that has immediate action with the uh, slow kind of drip, drip, drip type of events that we struggle to deal with. There was an article uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, that I came across, someone sent me, about an Amtrak crash. And I'll just read you the headline of the article. It says, NTSB team arrives in Missouri to investigate Amtrak derailment as death toll rises to four. Amtrak train derails, high-profile event, four people die 
and and let's be clear, I'm I'm I am not about to uh, diminish the deaths of four people. Four people should not die on an Amtrak line. I, I'm agreeing. But an entire bureaucracy mobilizes to investigate this, right? To get to the bottom of it. We're going to figure out what caused this, what happened to this. And if you follow the NTSB in any sense, when they investigate plane crashes or, or other incidents like this, they're very, very thorough in going through the, the all-cause factors. You know, we, we talked a few podcasts ago with a, a doctor about all-cause mortality and and how in mortality and morbidity conferences, you, you try to get to all the factors that influence the negative outcome. That's what the NTSB does in an Amtrak derailment. They, they mobilize and they go out there. And what will come out of this is, you know, a data point, yes. But what often comes out of these things is we, we need to fix this process, this procedure, because we had this high-profile event over here where a lot of people died we can see the causes that uh, that happened, and we need every Amtrak train in the country or every Amtrak operator in the country to be modified in order to do this and increase safety. We see the same thing with airplanes. We have to do, you know, these five things. Anybody who gets on a plane and is told to put your tray table in the upright position and, you know, all, all these things are things that came out of what, in a sense, were investigations of high-profile events. But let's stick on that number for a second. Four people. Four people. Last year, there were over 40,000 people who died on our roadways. Over 40,000, right? Drip, 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 drip. Four people are killed every hour on our roadways, right? It's an astounding number. It's an, it's an astounding number but it's drip, 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 drip. It's not high profile, right? In any one community it might be, right? You might see uh, where there's a, a, a calamity or a large crash and a, a number of people died, but generally it's a person here, a person there, person here, person there. A car crash happens and one person on the scene is dead, three people are brought to the hospital. That, that is like a very common occurrence. That happens all over the country every day. 40,000 people a year. When we look at this problem, what we see is that the top-down systems we've created have a really hard time responding to it, right? To the point where I think a lot of times they just tilt, right? They just go, and I don't mean tilt as in sway, I mean like a, a pinball machine, right? Like tilt to tilt, like things are broken, like it doesn't work, it's not working anymore. You get ridiculous things like some of the uh, the posters that are designed to shame drivers. You know, don't be a reckless driver. I, I, I've i told the story here before, I think, but I'll, I'll tell it again. I'm sitting at the homecoming football game. Homecoming, right? My kids are part of the halftime show. My one kid's playing in the band. I'm sitting there with my wife. We're watching a football game, and it's halftime. And, and all of a sudden, hey, we got our Vision Zero efforts. In Minnesota, we call it towards zero deaths. And so the, the guy comes on the speaker and he's like, you know, towards zero deaths, everybody drive safe and sober. Uh, the sheriff's department will be handing out t-shirts. And they the, the sheriff walks out, you know, uh, with like a few deputies and they got the the, the guns and they're shooting t-shirts up into the crowd. And everyone goes, yay, show me a t-shirt, yay. 
And uh, the T-shirts say some like, you know, drive safe, drive sober, whatever it is, you know. This is our towards zero death message. This is crazy, right? It's loony. You get the reckless driver stuff that we've talked about, this idea that, you know, as driving went down, all of a sudden we became maniacal, crazy, insane people who decided to drive high and drive uh, drunk and, and not wear our seatbelts. Um, when reality, it was, you know, congestion calming the highways, calming our strodes all along, keeping us safe by having, uh, you know, us not be able to drive fast. You see that the top-down institutions have a really, really hard time addressing the drip, 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 drip. The takeaway I want you to have here is to, is to recognize what you can do or what we need to do as communities to deal with this. When we go back to military and the military suicides, there's no expectation, there should be no expectation that, that you and me and the mother of the troop who's deployed, uh, it's not your responsibility. You have no mechanism to actually get armor to the vehicle that your kid is riding in, right? Like you and I can't go out and say, oh, we, we've got troops in harm's way. Um, let's raise the money and raise the funds and get the armor to them so that they can be safe while they're, they're driving down the road. We don't even think about that. That is a crazy idea. That never happens. That's really, really dumb. And in fact, it would be, in, I think, in a way counterproductive. We expect the large top-down institution to handle this problem. They are well-equipped to handle this problem. It is messy. It doesn't work perfectly. Uh, lots of people die in the interim, but eventually the problem gets fixed because there is a solution and a bureaucracy and a mechanism to handle that. But on the suicides, what we actually have seen is that the most effective things are very bottom-up that a lot of people who care about this issue deeply, who are just showing love to troops that need it. There's one place here in, in central Minnesota where if you're a struggling troop, you know, and a lot, of, a lot of the struggles that troops have when they come back is just integrating back into society, right? Like we have, when you are in the military, and it, this is true for the guard, it's gotta be way, way, way more true for regular troops. You become part of a group, right? You become comrades with those around you. You, you have the solidarity that you create amongst you because you've, you've gone through hardship together. I mean, you may not like these people. They may not like you, or some of them may like you, some of them may not, but you feel a bond to them because you've done something difficult together. And being in those places at that same time is, is very, um, there's a certain, um, I, I don't know, just, sense of togetherness that comes out of military service and comes out of being part of a military unit that I've just, you know, never experienced anywhere else. You take troops out of that and you put them into the American development pattern. It's very disorienting, right? You, you put them into standard America where you're, you know, by design isolated from everybody around you. It is very disorienting, and it's almost like, and I'm going to say this, and I, I don't mean to like demean um, anyone who's gone through this. I, I take this very, very seriously, but it, it's almost like you know, you're stripping an infant from their mother, right? like, a, like a, a, a baby puppy from their mom or a kitten from the, their, their mother. They'll just bleat, right? They'll just, they'll just cry. They'll just go on and on. Like, I, I, I'm lost. I'm lost. 
I, I, I lack the security I need to feel comfortable. And, and I think for a lot of troops coming back, that, that's the feeling, right? I had this, it was tense, it was unsafe, it was, it was high anxiety, but I had this camaraderie around me. I had this group that protected me. And now it's way safer. I'm not under attack, I'm not under assault, but I feel more vulnerable because I lack the people around me. Here in central Minnesota, we have a group that has recognized that part of, and, and, and I'm saying that's not the cause of veteran suicide, it's one component of it, has recognized that component and has created a house. Come and hang out. We're going to do bonfires every night. Just come and talk. Come and just be here. Come and just hang out with other people. Don't be alone. I, I find that beautiful, right? I, I find it inspiring. They are a, a small nonprofit. People donate to them. Uh, they're doing this on the cheap. Their goal is to be able to invite more and more people in, to be able to expand their efforts, to hopefully have their efforts copied in other places. It seems to be having some success, right? Um, the people who come there are finding some degree of solace and camaraderie. It's not to say that they don't ever commit suicide. They have had those tragedies happen. But it feels like and it seems like, and, and anecdotally you can see in the evidence that it's, it's maybe part of the solution. I think there's a lot of other things to be done in terms of veteran suicides. And, and, and what you see now is you see a lot of family organizations. You see a lot of, of wives and, 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 and spouses of veterans stepping forward and joining together and say, we, we need to fill in this gap. We need to take this up. And while I'm not going to stand here and say we've turned the tide on, on veteran suicides, I don't think we have. I, I think that we now have a much more sophisticated, bottom-up approach acknowledging this issue and focusing on it than we've ever had in the past. Go back to car crashes now. I do not think that the engineering profession is capable of dealing with the 40,000 deaths a year. I think that's just an attrition rate that is a byproduct of the system we've created. And when you look at the debates and the discussion around that 40,000 number, the responses are all ridiculous, right? They're the Vision Zero stuff where we're going to hand out t-shirts and put up posters to shame drivers, you know, things that, that are nonsensical and don't work in any way. They are things that a top-down organization wants to do, right? Like go out and build more stuff. So we've got a safety problem here. Um, I guess that needs a, a bigger project. We need a bigger intersection. We need more stuff. What really needs to happen to deal with the drip, 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 drip is a, is a bottom-up series of responses, right? I got a video sent to me of Springfield, Massachusetts. Um, Springfield is, is the city that uh, was featured most prominently in Confessions of a Recovering Engineer, my, my latest book. And in Springfield, uh, on State Street, they had a, a, a recurring problem with fatalities, with traumatic injuries. And they finally got to the point where they, they went out and from a very bottom-up way. I mean, they, they didn't wait and apply for a grant. They didn't go down and talk to the state. They, didn't, they went out with barrels and cones and paint, and they used their knowledge of how to do temporary construction signage to do an experiment on narrowing up the lanes, slowing things down, making the roadway safer. And they demonstrated through these efforts that they could do that. They could make things a lot safer. And now they're going to go out and make those permanent. 
right? I think that what we need right now is a ton of bottom-up assertiveness. When it comes to those 40,000 deaths a year, that drip, 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 I think we need to recognize. And, and I'm, I'm trying to do this in a way that doesn't cast shade. Like I, I understand why the military struggles to deal with veteran suicides. I understand why. It's really not core to their mission and it doesn't make sense in the context of their mission. It is really, really difficult. That doesn't mean they shouldn't try, but it does mean that they need to make a path for others to step in and fill up. And in fact, I feel like the military itself as an institution, their, their best efforts they've done on this have been to partner with local organizations, bottom-up organizations, to acknowledge that there is a problem, to empower them, to help them figure this out and fill in these gaps because it is really complex. We need local leaders to step up in the drip, drip, drip of traffic fatalities. We need them to fill this gap. We need them to recognize that these top-down institutions we've created, the ones that deliver us the, uh, you know, the green book and the, the manual and uniform traffic control devices and all the, uh, you know, quote-unquote improvement projects that are just big expansion projects that ultimately make things less safe. We, we have to recognize that all of these things come from institutions that are incapable of dealing with, by their very design, the little minutia and complexity that is causing this drip, drip, drip of fatalities. But we can deal with it. We can do something about it. We can step up and be part of that solution. In a couple of months here, we're going to launch the Strong Towns Crash Analysis Studio. And I, I've, I mentioned this before. We're looking for funding. We're lining up some money. We're, we're going we're to make this happen. We don't want to roll it out and have it not be successful. And so we're trying to line things up so that we can build a lot of momentum around this. But we're going to take a what is essentially a Zoom meeting, invite experts, experts that are technical experts, experts that are neighborhood, non-technical experts. And we're going to analyze crashes the same way that the NTSB analyzes the Amtrak collision where four people die. We're going to analyze them for all causes of the crash. And we're going to create a model that communities across the U.S., uh, Canada, and other parts of the world can adopt for themselves and follow so they can learn from the tragedies in their communities, iterate, improve, and, and fill that gap, that void that our top-down systems just can't address, the drip, drip, drip. We can fill that at the local level, make our streets a lot safer, make things a lot more productive, and, and really do serious damage to that 40,000 a year number. I want to make sure that I'm relating this correctly because I think our gut instinct is to look to the Department of Defense and say, solve the suicide problem. Our gut instinct is to look to the U.S. Department of Transportation and say, solve this traffic problem. I get that gut instinct. I, I get why there's some sense of responsibility, right? Like if we hadn't mobilized these troops to Iraq, they, they, would, they would not be having these problems right now. Like th there's a clear cause effect, right? If we had not built all these nasty strodes, if we had not created all this, uh, these, you know, highway standards applied to local streets, we would not be having this drip, drip, drip of death right now. There's some culpability there, right? And it, it makes us, there's a sense of vindication when we can get this, you know, point the finger and, and have some action taken. 
But if the Department of Defense said, we're going to you know, address suicides, I, I don't think they could. I don't think internally they're set up in a way or, or could actually set themselves up in a way that would do that. They can make things better. They can, you know, not stigmatize uh, depression. They can uh, work with local organizations and bottom-up organizations to get veteran services and help. But ultimately, to stop the drip, 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 someone needs to be there. Someone needs to be there to talk to people, to help them, to sit around a bonfire and, and have chats, to be part of their unit when their unit is no longer there. These things need to happen. They need to happen from the bottom up. The same goes for our streets. I don't think we should look to or have any expectation that the USDOT or the State Department of Transportation is suddenly going to transform. They're going to they're going to adopt some Vision Zero or complete streets policy, and, and then they're going to step in and uh, we're going to get rid of forty thousand deaths a year, and and our streets are suddenly going to save. It, it is not going to happen. It will not happen. It cannot happen. These institutions are not set up to to do this. They're not the right place to do it. Your community is. Your local city hall is. Your local engineer is. Your street and the people who live on it are the people to address this. I'm asking you, I'm calling on you to keep in proportion your expectations of what top-down systems can deliver. And in doing so, increase your expectations of what voids the bottom-up systems need to fill. If we do that, not only will we find we've got tons of stuff to do, I mean, we have a ridiculous amount of stuff to do, but that those things that we need to do are within our capacities, they're within our ability, within our resources. And while individually it might not be as high profile as a train derailment, Every single crash that we can investigate and look into and learn from and then take those lessons and turn them back into uh, different practices for how we design and build our places, every one of those is going to lead to many, many, many lives being saved. That's how we deal with the drip, drip, drip. That's how we make our places better. That's how we make our streets safer. That's how we make our communities more prosperous. We all have a role to play here. And if, if your role is, is merely being open to the idea that a bottom-up response is needed, please have your heart open to that and let others know about it. Don't be afraid to push for that. It seems sometimes like it's not enough, right? It seems sometimes like sitting around a bonfire is like an inadequate response to 30,000 veteran suicides. I get it. But 1,000 bonfires is not an inadequate response. 10,000 bonfires is not an inadequate response. And that's what we're talking about here. Go out in your city. Learn from the tragedies that have occurred. Pledge to do better. And then go out and implement that. We can do it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I'm sorry if this was a, a sensitive topic. I, I know for some people this hits really close to home and... and you have my empathy. You have my support. I don't use the topics, uh, the metaphor in this way to in any way degrade you know, what has gone on with troops, but, but more to elevate and learn from and understand because I think there are heroic things going on uh, in the realm of veteran suicides that, that, that we should all learn from. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care. 
They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, Magnet City! I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.